I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. David Marinus brilliantly rescues Jim Thorpe from myth and prejudice, restoring something more consequential than the Olympic medal stolen from him by small men, his humanity. This is from Jane Levy, author of The Big Fella and Sandy Koufax. David is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. His nuanced, thoroughly researched works, now number 13, and in each he not only tells the story of an individual, but also gives us a sense of an era. In Path Lit by Lightning, the life of Jim Thorpe is rendered as captivatingly as any biography you'll read. I thoroughly agree with Jonathan Eig when he writes, this book is a flat out masterpiece. My conversation with David took place live at Books and Books in Carl Gables. So why Jim Thorpe? Well, I sort of consider this the third book in a trilogy of sports biographies that about figures who transcend sports. So uh, Lombardi, you know, a great football coach, but um, also a way for me to explore the mythology of competition and success in American life, what it takes and what it costs. Um, Clemente, not just a beautiful ball player, but uh, a way to look at the Latino experience on the mainland. And even more than that, um, you know, so many athletes are called heroes and almost none really are. And Clemente was, you know, his motto was, if you have a chance to help others and fail to do so, you're wasting your time on this earth. And he died living out that motto, trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after an earthquake in 1972, when he heard that the strongman Anastasio Somoza was diverting the aid. So Thorpe comes along, not just this uh, athlete of unparalleled accomplishments, but really a chance for me to um, 
explore the Native American experience through his life. I love to use the drama of sports to write about something larger. And that's what you do so beautifully in all of your books. And, and, and the thing about Jim Thorpe, I think, and we were talking a little bit about this before, is that probably everybody of our age or general age probably knows of Jim Thorpe, but only of what they learned when they were in grade school, I would think. Yeah, I think two, two ways that people say, oh, I, I know Jim Thorpe. One is, oh, I read about him in fourth grade. You know, is there, you know, boys, but not just boys, girls too. You know, it was one of the first books they read about a sports figure because he sort of fit into that pantheon of, you know, Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson and Jim Thorpe. Um, they weren't writing about any other Native Americans, but Thorpe was the one they chose. Um, and Or they saw the 1951 movie, uh, Jim Thorpe All-American, starring Burt Lancaster. So both of those, I say, fine, I'm glad you got interested, but they're completely mythology, and I want to tell the real story. So tell us the real story a little bit. The real story of Jim Thorpe is, um, it really is the story of the Native American experience in the last part of the 19th century through the mid-20th century, which was an era of forced acculturation and assimilation. The year he was born, 1887, was the year of the passage of the Dawes Act, which essentially was an effort to break up reservations completely, uh, the communal sensibility of Native American tribes, and give them private property, little allotments, um, which were also sort of rigged so that they would lose much of that land. So the Oklahoma land rushes or land runs that people know about in Oklahoma, you know, makes glorious, was really uh, land th thievery. You know, they taking land from the Sac and Fox uh, tribe, which Jim belonged to, or the um, Potawatomi or the Cherokee, all of the tribes of Oklahoma losing their land the year he was born. He died in 1953, um, the year of the uh, Detribalization Act, which was an effort to to get rid of all Indian tribes and just make them part of American society. And in the middle, you have Thorpe going through the Indian boarding school process, which was the classic case of forced assimilation. Uh, Jim Thorpe went through three Indian boarding schools. First, he, he grew up in Indian territory of Oklahoma, um, so he was first sent to the Sac and Fox boarding school with his twin brother, Charlie. Most people don't know that Jim was a twin, but they don't know that because Charlie died at that boarding school at age nine. Um, and when you study the, the effects of the Indian boarding schools, you see an enormous number of, an inordinate number of young Indian students who went there against their will and died at those schools. Um, Thorpe rose to fame at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. And that school was formed in 1879. The motto of the school's founder was kill the Indian, save the man, which meant um, the whole purpose was take away their language, um, their religion, their culture, um, sh you know, shear their braids and, and, and uh, dress them in the uniforms of the U.S. Cavalry, um, and, and in a f effort at forced assimilation. How did, he, how did he make it from Oklahoma to Pennsylvania? Well, because when he went was sent to the to the uh, first boarding school, the second Fox one, he ran away. His father said, "Well, I'm going to send you somewhere further where you can't run away." Sent him to the Haskell Institute in Lawrence, Kansas, 
he'd run away from that one. So finally, his dad, who was kind of a, a fascinating character, he was a ruffian. He was, he he had uh, five wives and eighteen children. He'd sold bootleg liquor in the back of a wagon. Um, also, the strongest man that Thorpe ever encountered, who could um, go hunting with young Jim. They'd walk twenty miles. The dad would shoot a deer, put it on his back, and carry it all the way back home. So that that was his father. Anyway, when his when Jim was 16, his father was on his fifth wife, and she wanted nothing to do with Jim, so they sent him further away to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. When he arrived there at age 16, unbelievably, he stood 5'5 and weighed 115 pounds. And within five years, he was the incredibly-looking athlete that he became. And and his his athletic prowess shown when he was at the Carlisles. It did. It took a while. Um, he got there in 1904, and for the first three years there, he wasn't really there. Part of the part of the boarding school process was essentially a scam of indentured servitude. They'd send the young Indian students to local farms where they would work for minimal pay. Um, but that was part of the acculturation process. You know, these people will teach you how to be white. Um, Jim Thorpe was at those farms for three years. Um, he ran away from the third one. He didn't like the, the patron. And he was back at the boarding school in the spring of 1907. And the story sounds kind of made up, but it actually is true. He was working on the farm at the school, walked by the track, the field, saw a group of, of athletes trying to clear the bar at six feet in the high jump. And uh, they couldn't do it. He's wearing overalls, not a track outfit, and he easily clears the bar. And the next day he's on the track team. <laughs> and pretty right. soon he's on the football team, and that all begins from there. Same thing happened with the football team, more or less. If pretty that's much. that's a true story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he, you know, the, the, the track coach didn't want him to play football, but he was just, right. in the practice he was so good that they... Uh, and that completely turned his life around at that point. I would say yes. Um, and you you could argue, I mean, if he hadn't gone to Carlisle, no one would ever have heard of him. Um, but he might have had a happier life. <laughs> you know, um, fame did not did not make him, uh, you know, did not solve all of his problems or the problems that society threw his way. But definitely starting in 1907 through 1912, when he had what I would call the greatest single year of any athlete in American history, where he not only won gold medals in the decathlon and the pentathlon at Stockholm in the Summer Olympics, but then went back to Carlisle and was a brilliant All-American football player for his final season. Because there. Carlisle was a college as well. It was not a college, but, but they it played, played Harvard. They played Harvard. Yes, and, they played and here's one of the great ironies, Mitch. Um, it was an industrial school. The students there could range in age from 10 to 27. And a lot of the football players were older, and there was a little bit of uh, corruption going on in recruiting them um, by the famed Pop Warner, who was the coach then. You know, and youth football now is named after Pop Warner. If, if people actually knew what he was like, I might not have that name. any case, um, the, the, the irony is that First of all, these were really good athletes, the Native American athletes. The point of 
emphasizing football at the school was that it was thought that was another form of acculturation, that they could sort of meet all of the Ivy League football players. You know, the school, the best schools then weren't Alabama and uh, Oklahoma and Ohio State. It was Penn and Harvard and Yale yeah. and Princeton and West Point. So wherever the Carlisle Indian team played, they draw really big crowds because they were exotic. But they were playing for a school that was trying to drum that out of them. You know, that's one of the ironies of it. Um, so, yeah, Thorpe, Thorpe, the Carlisle team would play all those uh, Ivy League schools, which would get a lot of money for it. It would bring money back to Carlisle. Um, but they weren't a college. And this was before the NCAA, NCAA. sorry. Well, it's an, an, an amazing upset of, Har of Harvard as well. It must have been really great. I think they went 11-1 and one that year. Yeah, they, they beat Harvard. Thorpe uh, won the game single-footedly with all of his field goals, <laughs> right. along with great running. And then the next year in 1912, after the Olympics, it's my favorite game of all because I call it the greatest single game of athletic retribution in American history. It was... Carlisle against West Point, the Indians against the Army, wow. and the Indians won, thrashed the Army 27-6. to 6. Thorpe was the star of the game. On the Army team was a young linebacker slash running back named Dwight David Eisenhower, who before the game conspired with one of his teammates to try to figure out a way to knock the great Jim Thorpe out of the game. So they thought they would hit him high and low and concuss him. And he, he, football was, has always been a dirty sport. Um, it was even dirtier then. And so th that was their plan. They, they did tackle Thorpe high and low. He was on the ground for about a minute. And then he got up and kept playing and eventually knocked Eisenhower out of the game. <laughs> but that victory was just, you know, all of the New York sports writers were there. And Thorpe was brilliant. And that after the Olympics, that sort of lifted him into this incredible pantheon of athletic heroes. As a heroic figure during that period, how was he treated culturally and in the media? And how, what was his life like? I think that it was emblematic of the way uh, indigenous peoples were treated then and always have been, which is romanticized and diminished at the same time. Mm. So the sports writers would glorify Thorpe, thought they were being his champion. At the same time, they were writing about him, calling him chief or the big chief. You know, that's what they would assign to every native athlete. They weren't chiefs. Um, during their games, they'd be um, going on the warpath, taking scalps. You can't read a story about the Carlisle Indians in that period and not see that those terms used. So that was the diminishment of them at the same time they were sort of raising them up and mythologizing them. One of the fascinating things I sort of came to appreciate in writing this book was the different ways that Native Americans and African Americans were treated by white society. Talk about that a little bit. Well, African Americans, first of all, they couldn't play in college, uh, most colleges. Um, they certainly couldn't play Major League Baseball, which Thorpe did. Um, or, you know, very few were allowed to play uh, professional football, and then that was stopped by 1930-something. Um, Jim Thorpe could not only participate in all of those, he could also travel to Baton Rouge or Jackson, Mississippi, right. um, and, and be, you know, talk to the touchdown club. 
And that goes all the way back. I, you know, one of the things I studied was Thorpe was from the Sac and Fox Nation. His ancestor was Black Hawk, who was also Sac and Fox. And Black Hawk, in, the, in 1832, after the quote-unquote Black Hawk War, which was really a massacre of his people when they tried to move back across the Mississippi River to their homelands, Black Hawk was captured as a prisoner of war and paraded. First, he was taken down to uh, St. Louis by, amazingly, Jefferson Davis was the officer who took him down there. Then he was taken all the way out to the East Coast um, as a prisoner of war. And wherever he went, these huge crowds would turn out. There was a frenzy to see Black Hawk. It was like the tulip frenzy in Holland. I mean, it's called Black Hockiana. And um, and the, all of the newspapers wrote about it, including the Southern papers. Can you imagine them writing that way about an African-American during that period? No. Um, so there was always this romanticization. Also, you know, when you study, um, when you talk to, I've talked to so many people who say, oh, I, I have some Indian blood, or, you know, my great-grandmother was, right. was Indian. And how many people are going around saying, oh, I have some black blood, you know? I mean, it's just a completely different perspective. And that's the way Jim Thorpe was treated, and, the, you know, that's an enormous difference between mm. the two races. No, it's... But both were, both were suffered from genocide. Both were segregated against in enormous right. ways, just differently. Yeah, and we, I talked to you a little bit earlier about the... Uh, the schools that uh, Booker T. Washington put together for you know, young black students or uh, the same kind of acculturation that was attempted. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the whole process for white America and the government was to take away their land, take away their reservations, force them into the cities, and make them as white as possible. So it was both the policies about land and the policies about education were, were forced acculturation. Tell me a little bit about his personal life as well. He, he married? Well, he um, at Carlisle, he met his first wife, Iva Miller, who interestingly um, had gone to uh, an Indian boarding school in Oklahoma, Shalako, and um, thought that she was Cherokee. Really? because her mother had died when she was young, and her father sent, sent all of this, the kids to an Indian boarding school. And the older ones knew that they weren't Indian, but she didn't. And so she went through the whole uh, Carlisle process. You know, culturally, she was Native American, but, but you know, in terms of her race, she wasn't. She married Jim um, in 1913 after he'd started in the Olympics. Um, and she was the first of his three wives. But, you know, at Carlisle and in those early years, you could start to see some of the problems developing, not just what society imposed on him, but he struggled with alcoholism from a fairly, you know, from his teenage years on. It, it would wax and wane over the decades, um, but it caused uh, his first two wives to divorce him. You talk about Jim Thorpe and the mythology around Jim Thorpe. Talk about how that developed. He became emblematic of something. And, and what is it that well, you're piercing right now with this book? Yeah, I mean, I think what he became emblematic of is not what I'm interested in. Exactly. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, he became emblematic of that romanticization of Native Americans. You know, here was this natural athlete who was um, just incredibly gifted. 
And the natural part of that implies uh, a stereotype, which is that, you know, it, which also applies to a lot of minority athletes, African-Americans as well, that they don't have to work at it. No they nuance. To, no, they don't have to think about right. it. They're just great athletes. Right. So that applied to Jim and that, you know, the sports writers would say that he didn't train before the Olympics. Um, he didn't have to think about it. And that's completely wrong. He did train hard. And he was really sort of in the vanguard of, of mental visualization. He could, you know, his teammates said he could watch somebody else do something and visualize it and then do it better than they could. Um, so, so he, you know, all of those stereotypes are wrong. Um, the what I see him emblemizing is uh, perseverance and survival. You know, there's a point in the in the in his story in my book. It's 1915, and the most popular sculpture statue in America is called the End of the Trail, and it portrays an Indian slumped on a slumping horse, um, and the implication is it's all over, that the race is dying and about to die, manifest destiny has prevailed, you know, the the Indians are rendered an anachronism, uh, indigenous peoples, and um, before Europeans got to this country, to this continent, there were, uh, you know, estimates of 7 million or more Native Americans here. Um, by the turn of the century, there were fewer than 300,000. Um, but it didn't happen. You know, it wasn't the end of the trail. They didn't die. And, you know, there are now a few million, and the, the efforts at complete um, acculturation luckily didn't fully succeed. Um, and Jim Thorpe kept going and persevering in that same way, despite all of the troubles that society threw at him or that he, you know, of his own doing. Um, There's a wonderful, you know, the book, first of all, the book is gorgeously designed and it, it does, it's, it's strong the way yeah, Jim Thorpe is I agree is and I had nothing to do with that. And there is this gorgeous photograph of him on the, the very startling photograph of him on the cover. Yes. And then if you go to the back end of the book on the inside, there's Jim Thorpe at the beginning of his life and at the end of the life, his life. Yeah. And even with the difficulties that he had, there's a kind of dignity in that photograph at the end as well. Um, he has that, he just, he, he exudes strength in so many different ways. Oh, so I, the idea of perseverance yeah, is right on, I think. I think, you know, and, and, you know, as I was writing the last 10 chapters of the book, even though I knew what was going to happen, I kept rooting for something better to happen. You know, uh, you know, I mean, he, he moved from state to state, lived in 20 some different states. He took jobs ranging from digging ditches in Los Angeles to being a, um, a greeter at taverns and bars, you know, kind of like Joe Lewis was. Um, probably the most interesting part of that afterlife, as I call it, was when he was in uh, Southern California and on the fringes of the studio industry. Uh, he, he acted, quote unquote, in more than 70 movies, um, mostly as a, in a bit part. Sometimes they'd say, with Jim Thorpe or starring Jim Thorpe. And I watched almost all of the movies. You can barely find him in any of them, but they were using his name. But the important part of that was that there were probably a few hundred Native Americans who were trying to get into the industry. There were a lot of Westerns being filmed. 
Um, and often they would use white actors and dress them in grease paint and war paint. And Thorpe became their spokesman and said, you know, if you're going to do this, uh, hire us, you know, hire real, real Indians. And he also was uh, speaking out against the stereotypes of a lot of those movies. Um, so I think that as his athletic talents diminished, he sort of um, started to think more about his identity as a Native American, about the injustice that had been done to him when his gold medals were stripped from him, and all of the other things that had happened to him. And he, he sort of um, became, I would never call him political, but he became much more outspoken about the injustice of, of, this, uh, of this country. In, in 1951, a film was made of his life, Jim Thorpe, All-American. And it starred Burt Lancaster as Jim Thorpe. Lancaster, you know, great movie star, but he's not Native American. Um, the director was Michael Curtiz, who directed Casablanca. Uh, the movie was sympathetic, but wrong in almost every respect. Right. You know, uh, the the hero of the mo movie is not Jim Thorpe, but Pop Warner, his coach, who had lied to save his own reputation after Thorpe lost his gold medals. And the implication of the movie is if only Thorpe had listened to Pop, he wouldn't have suffered the way he did. And so, you know, it, 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 I don't think people were really listening to, to Thorpe at that point. And, you know, maybe now, finally, you know... Um, well, we just, we see certain things happening. Like We certainly do. They just, uh, the, you can explain it better than I can, but the Olympics just... Uh, uh, said that he is the the winner of those races that they stripped the medals. The records are the finally records fully are restored. Finally restored. 110 right. years too late, and that story. I mean, the injustice was greater than people realize. It was not just that. Yes, he had played minor league baseball or bush league baseball in the Eastern Carolina League for two summers. Scores of college athletes were doing that then. Many of them were playing under aliases. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower played under the alias Wilson in the Kansas State League. Uh, there were so many aliases in the in the Eastern Carolina League. They called it the Pocahontas League because everyone was named John Smith. I mean, it was just you know. So Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. That's one point. Secondly, Pop Warner, his coach, Moses Friedman, the superintendent at Carlisle. And James E. Sullivan, who was the head of the Amateur Athletic Union and of the American Olympic Committee, the Sullivan Award is still given to the greatest amateur athlete uh, every year. All three of them knew exactly what Thorpe had been doing, and all three lied about it and were responsible for him send, for sending back the medals and, and trophies and stripping him of, of everything. Um, so, you know, they were hypocritical. Um, then... The larger question, which has always been true, is who's an amateur and who's a professional? Um, which people are still struggling with. Oh, today. totally. Well, I mean, now at least all the Olympics, anybody can compete. Right. But in that era, uh, I mean, one of one of Thorpe's teammates on the 1912 team was George S. Patton. Another general comes into the story. And he competed in what was called the modern pentathlon, which was all military-style events equestrian, fencing, target shooting. 
the Army was paying him to train for all those events. Was right. he a professional or an amateur? Thorpe played baseball, which had nothing to do with the events he was competing in. Um, and even technically, it was wrong to take away his medals because an Olympic rule said that um, for a challenge to someone's amateurism to be legitimate, it had to be filed within 30 days of the end of the Olympics. And this didn't happen until six months later. Hmm. So in every possible way, it was an injustice. And it was only this year, 2022, when it was finally restored. And we're still struggling with so many of the things that you write about. I mean, you know, the whole idea of renaming all the sports teams that totally you know yeah. i mean the, the washington team the well what's beautiful about the washington story is that they were originally the boston redskins and the coach of that team was one of jim thorpe's teammates on the carlisle wow. football team named lone star deets and the owner of the washington football team danny snyder in defending calling them the redskins would say well they were named you know they were they were named this in Boston when the coach was was a Redskin. Um, turns out Lone Star Dietz was a fake Indian. He wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't even a real Indian. So that's beautiful. Um, but yeah, that issue is still around. There's still teams with with well Cleveland now. Yeah, you know, Guardians. Atlanta. I mean, it's starting to change. It actually Atlanta. showed up in the debate. I think in Georgia. Yeah, in, in Georgia, they. Well, you know. the, yeah. There's a. I mean, I don't know whether whether Atlanta's team will ever get rid of that tomahawk chop right. but maybe it's inevitable but um the other issue that's so much in the news is the boarding schools yeah. you know just uh recently the pope went to canada to apologize for the catholic indian boarding that's schools right. um the secretary of the interior deb holland who's a, a pueblo um and terrific has started sort of a re-examination of of the whole what those boarding schools did generationally in, in the United States. So that issue is... Well, and in the state of Florida, we have, uh, you know, an African-American boarding school that was the Dozier School outside That's of right. Jacksonville. And, you know, Colson Whitehead wrote that novel that was the about Boys. it. Yeah. The Nickel Boys. And, yeah, the history is littered with so much injustice. Uh, and when you think about it directed toward kids, it makes it even more... Absolutely. You know, so horrific. many of... I mean, Jim Thorpe, when he went to the Olympics in 1912... His teammate was Louis Tawanama, who was a long-distance runner, a Hopi Indian. And Tawanama and 11 of his Hopi uh, buddies were prisoners of war. They were literally taken away from their families by the army because the Hopi were, quote-unquote, rebellious and not conforming to white society. So they took their kids away by force um, to, to Carlisle. And that happened uh, many times. You know, it wasn't just voluntary at all. Um, so that's part of American history. And of course, sadly, we're in a period right now where people are trying to deny history, you know, as opposed to really explore it and write people back into history. It's exactly They're writing right. it out. You know, we're in Miami Dade right now in the, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the state of Florida. If people would see this as a kind of revisionist history that might not be permitted into the high schools. <laughs> well, if they read it. I mean, you know, they probably... <laughs> well, they don't read any of the no, things okay. they ban. So, you know, that's the thing. I mean, romanticized at the same time. So you might see many of these same people who would ban the book if they knew what it was really about. So they're saying, oh, Jim Thorpe. I love Jim Thorpe. Right. You know? That's exactly right. But, you know, the other thing that marks all of your work is the incredible research that you do. Uh, could you speak a little bit about that? How do you... when when? So you have the idea of doing Jim Thorpe. Right. Then what do you do? 
Well, somewhere along the line, I developed sort of what I call the four legs of the table for my research. The first one is to go there and really live in the place and immerse myself in the cultural geography of the, to understand the forces that shape someone's life. Um, so, you know, I often told the story of after the 1996 election when I was covering um, Bill Clinton, literally the day after that, I turned to my wife Linda and said, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? Um, to which she responded, Burr, but we did, and it made a huge difference in sort of understanding the company town atmosphere of Green Bay, Wisconsin, and to feel the, the weather and everything about that place. Um, so that's the first leg of the table, uh, and I've done that, you know, we've gone to Rome for my book on the Rome Olympics, to Puerto Rico for Clemente, to Indonesia and Kenya and Hawaii for Obama, um, sort of making up for that Green Bay winter, in a sense. But for this book, it was different because of COVID. So that first leg of the table, I couldn't really do in the same way. I mean, Oklahoma, I didn't want to live in Oklahoma during COVID. That was not a place to be. Um, so I got there, but I, I was never able to really fully immerse myself in it. I wasn't able to get to Stockholm for the same reason, although I did find a, an incredible um, soundless documentary of someone had put together putting together all of the different um, newsreels from PATH and other places, two hours of what was going on in Stockholm. So, And it was done, it was modernized in a way where you could feel the people, not as herky-jerky movements that you, you know, because mm -hmm. people never really lived that way, right? right. So I really felt that I was there. Uh, but I couldn't get to Stockholm. Um, so that leg of the table was different. Similarly, interviewing people is the second leg, and Thorpe was born in 1887, no contemporaries alive, none of his seven children alive when I started the book. So, you know, unlike Clinton or Obama, where I interviewed hundreds of people, really, that was not the key to this one. Archival research was the key to this one, which is the third leg. Um, and I, you know, I found things all over, you know, the the um, Beinecke uh, Rare Book Library Archive in, at Yale had the papers of Richard Henry Pratt, the founder of the Carlisle School, and of N. Scott Momaday, the great novelist who was right. obsessed with these boarding schools and wrote a lot about them, wrote a, an unpublished uh, screenplay about Carlisle. So going through his papers was really helpful for me. Um, the University of Illinois Archive had all the papers of Avery Brundage, who was the head of the Olympic Committee right. during the many years that they denied Thorpe his due. Um, one of the fun ones was the Rosenbach Library at, in Philadelphia, which has the papers of Marianne Moore, the poet. And she taught at Carlisle when Thorpe was there. Really? It was her first job out of Bryn Mawr. Wow. She taught business classes. She thought the school was a prison, but she loved her Indian students. She wrote about Thorpe and Iva, his first wife. And that was really fun to read about, you know. Um, so I probably got about 22 archives and... Luckily, some of them were fully digitized. Uh, you know, the internet can be a force for horror or greatness, and finding primary documents online really saves a lot of time. So all of the, all of the government records about Carlisle were digitized. Similarly, places like newspapers.com had papers going all the way back to 1832 and three when, when Blackhawk was being paraded around the country. I could read the real papers about that online. Um, so uh, 
archival research was the key to this book. The fourth leg I call uh, sort of looking for what's not there to try to break through the mythology and find the real story. So that's how I do it. Um, and uh, luckily, you know, Robert Carroll has the phrase, turn every page, which is so true, but really hard. I mean, after seven hours in an archive, your eyes start to glaze over. But when you find a little piece of gold, it's worth it. Um, but I think it was Carroll, too, or I remember him being asked, you know, you have to really want to live with somebody for yes, that long. exactly. And did you come to admire Thorpe? Did you come to feel sorry for Thorpe? At the end of the day, what At is the your en- overall feeling about Jim Thorpe? He, uh, it was mostly admiration. Um, I decided it wasn't a tragedy, um, that it was a story of perseverance, and that's the the admirable part about him. He was, he, and he was not a bad person. He was very generous. Um, you know, he had, he had trouble with drinking, but I don't consider that. You know, I mean, it's not that unusual. No, it's not that unusual. <laughs> um, I could never write, uh, spend four years of my life with somebody that I hated. Right. So the probably the most complicated person I've written about was Bill Clinton, uh, and there were chapters where I admired him greatly in chapters where I didn't, <laughs> um, but they were all him. And I came to appreciate him as a character for all of that and trying to understand that. Um, but, you know, people say, well, why don't you write about Donald Trump? I could never do it. I, first of all, I don't even find him interesting per se as a bi- biography. I don't think um, he's one-dimensional to me, and I like complicated people. Uh, so what's next? Do you have something else that... That's on the horizon? Or do you not want to talk about it, which is well, certainly fun, uh, too? The first thing on the horizon, actually, is a gap year. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm 73, my Linda's 73, and we decided, what the hell, let's take a year and just uh, see our kids and grandkids and travel. And, you know, uh, but then I will get back to it. Um, I, I, you know, people said, well, will you lose your fastball on a... I'd say, well, Justin Verlander took a year off, you know, so I can do it. Um, you deserve a year off. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I have some things to do. I, I would like to write a, the second volume of Obama. Um, and uh, and there's some other ideas I have that I haven't fully formed yet. Well, I thank you for being here. I thank you for being in Miami. I thank you for writing a Pathlet by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. And I thank you for being a good friend, David. Thank you for being here. It's delightful. Thank you, Mitch. 